When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Introducing the new Starbucks Pistachio Cream Cold Brew. Silky Pistachio Cream Cold Foam tops our bold, smooth, cold brew for a delicious twist on a favorite winter flavor. Make today a good day. Order ahead on the Starbucks app. This is Mike Francesa. Join me each week on the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. This is real sports talk for the podcast generation. Subscribe to the free Mike Francesa podcast today from wherever you get your podcasts. Don't even think about betting this football season until you check out the Sports Betters Paradise podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. The top college and pro football handicappers help you along all season long. Subscribe to Sports Betters Paradise wherever you get your podcasts. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to I'm going to let you finish listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash I'm going to let you, I-M-M-A-L-E-T-U. That's betterhelp.com slash I'm going to let you, I-M-M-A-L-E-T-U. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. What's up, everybody? It's I'm going to let you finish on the Pantheon Podcast Network. We're your host, Court and Amy. It's show 92. 92. We have a special guest today. We do. Mitchell Cohen, who is the author of the upcoming book, Looking for the Magic. And we're going to break it down about all things music industry and the great, great Arista Records, which you and I remember very fondly. That was a great label. So Mitchell was there from the beginning. And we're going to, as the kids say, chop it up with him. 
And he was at Columbia when I worked at Columbia. So this should be a great conversation. All righty. So uh, the weekend just passed. How was your weekend? Anything good happened? Blase, blase. Boo, did you watch? The no, I heard, I heard Jesus rose, right? He did. Yes, okay. he did. Yes, he did. Okay. He cool. is risen. <laughs> he is risen. He is risen. <laughs> That's nice. Um, nothing. Uh, should we start off in a kind of, let's just acknowledge um, the passing of a really, really important uh, Very influential. DJ, very influential DJ and graffiti artist, uh, K-Slay, who passed away. After a long battle with COVID. He'd been yeah. in the hospital for months. It's really sad. It's just. Young. Uh, very, you know, just yeah. right, you know, street was was the guy that premiered. Yeah, the guy who premiered uh, Nas's Ether. So he was like the drama king, you know, the drama show. So uh, a hot nineties, a hot ninety seven legend. Yeah, a so, New York legend, though yeah. bigger than that. But I really, you know, especially the heyday of hot ninety seven. Yeah, you know what I mean. But he's been he was on the air for over twenty some and a years. very yeah. a very acclaimed graffiti artist as mm-hmm. well. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, very sad. We we send respect to his family and his I think fans I met him maybe when I was at Violator. I'm thinking probably, probably. yeah, probably that would make sense. Um, all right, so th- th- no more sadness. Um, so Coachella, I didn't go. You didn't. Speaking go. of no more sadness, no more sadness. Yeah, well, this is what it was. Uh, lots of people who I see online on TikTok being like things like. I ordered a celebrity stylist to style me for Coachella. Then I see everybody else posting all of their pictures and their outfits and their things. I'm like, did any of you actually go to a show? I, I sort of wanted to be, this is how I sum up all of Coachella. So this interview with a young person, very happy for him. He had his passes. Who are you excited to see? Well, I don't really know. You know, I'm just, I come because it's the people and we just want to be scene. with people. Right. It's just become That's, a scene. It's just become a scene. It's like it's, they can give a shit It's it's, it's like Afropunk on steroids. It's like, it's like Soul Summit on steroids. It's very like, there, actually. It, it's, it's actually like, so that you could just say, I, I was, was there. there. I was there. But it had pictures. There was some music. There was actually some, some good music going on. There was on. good music. Mm-hmm. And a lot of artists, uh, Megan the Stallion for one and Harry Styles for another, uh, debuted new music, which mm-hmm. is usually not the venue you do that. Usually you don't bring out the stuff people mm-hmm. don't know at a big show. So mm-hmm. um, I have not read uh, Anita also. Uh, killed i've heard yeah, i have yeah. not read any Billie neg- Eilish, all yeah, of, yeah i have not read any negative reviews of any of the music so that's mm-hmm. the important thing right. um bringing out unlikely guest stars was kind of the vibe uh well that's always that's always happens at coachella so yeah i i mean i'm you know i love harry styles but this Mm -hmm. you know i'm glad he loves older women he has shown it over and over again Mm -hmm. but you know the shania twain really okay fine oh no um you can always bring out shania i love shania twain i love her um but it just sounded great. Every from what the clips I saw, it sounded great. Everybody sounded great. It seemed to be a good time was had by all, and we'll see what the COVID yes. rates are in two yes. weeks. Because I saw so many amazing just maskless out- people and <laughs> outfits. It was everybody like, "I'm at Coachella. Here's my look." I'm like, "Well, the only person who can get away with that is Harry Styles because he mm-hmm. had the best look of anybody." So, mm-hmm. all right, so. Uh, also debuting new music because here's the thing we talk about you enough and you're just going to come through Lizzo was the host mm-hmm. and the musical guest on uh, Saturday Night Live this week mm-hmm. um, I mean she's very personable mm-hmm. obviously she's not 
you know, she couldn't keep a straight face throughout any of these things. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a the thing they like to do is throw people in there. Who, she was very personal. She sounded great. Um, the song. I mean, what do you think of her new song? Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, so <laughs> let me just say this. <laughs> right, I'm going to leave the room and give myself the Heimlich maneuver and then I'll come back. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. And this has been in record time, and I do not know how this happened. I'm not going to say it. When Lizzo was putting out almost these records independently, and she had a whole vibe going on, I really loved what she was doing. Then it seems like she had the big breakthrough. We were all so happy. And then she seemed to have gotten a little caught up in the fame aspect to it. And if you ask me a thousand percent, I think her art is suffering for it because I don't enjoy this art. And she thinks she's becoming too much of a thing, a personality. And I I think she's in in, in you. It's a very fine line when you've been working really hard for something. You have the breakthrough and then a bunch of opportunities come. Right. And you want to make sure you can take advantage. You want to help your family. You want to help yourself. But you can't lose your artistry in it. And there's something about her lyrics now that are just too literal. It feels like a a stream of consciousness tweets. And I just don't think it's great. Like, I like the idea of a discotastic song, but I think it's. But this it, sounded like every discotastic song I've ever heard. Thing. I couldn't. It's, I mean, I mean, and I didn't gonna, like the second one either. I just, I'm just yeah, like, I'm, I'm not, your artist suffering. The yeah, artist I'm, suffering. I'm, I'm, I think, I'm, I think she's one of these people now that people just love her and it almost doesn't matter mm-hmm. anymore. I mean, and she is, but I would rather see her. Yeah, she's got a great voice, but it's, you know, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I heard the song and I couldn't. I'm not it's apples and oranges, but the first time I heard um, the Harry Styles song, I had it memorized. Well, the thing this is, one, I, heard I, the can't even rem- I can't remember this song. I at heard all, the Harry Styles song and it immediately sounded like a hit song, right? Yeah, this I'm doesn't. listening to her song and I get where they were going, but I don't feel like it arrived at the location no, no. intact. No, not at all. It took you too know many what ramps. You know when you, when you hire a bootleg moving company and then your shit yeah. shows up fucked up? It may yeah. show up, but yeah, it's but fucked up. up. That's what this moment I, feels I, like. I would like it's it's just going to. Yeah, I, I just feel like in a lot of ways like you she, want it to be better. Well, yeah, it's just not that. It's just like four years, really, for this. This the is art, just like the art is suffering to me. The yeah, art this is, is really just suffering. sort of like it feels like an outtake from a Bernard Edwards tribute record. Right. And tribute record, not tribute. a Bernard Edwards tribute, tribute record, right? Tribute record. All right, but you know, we'll see. You know, we'll see if, if lightning can strike twice. Because I mean, she certainly is people. She is someone who is in. She is someone who people are rooting for. All right, so yes. that that is in her favor. All right, so you kind of turned me on to this Mariah Carey. Why don't you? Did she did one of those master class things. Yes. Well, you know that how there's the Masterclass series and Mariah has one out right now called uh, Using Your Voice as an Instrument. And I, I honestly, listen, I I love me some Mariah Carey. And I didn't always feel that way about Mariah Carey. When I was at Columbia, I have to be honest with you. I don't know if I really gave two shits about Mariah. I had a, my friend Bobby really loved her. I, you know, I enjoy some of her songs. I didn't care. It's It's later that I've really started to appreciate one, the fact that 
she produces and she writes. And I don't think people always want to give her that respect because of the Betty Boopness of it all. Yeah. But watching her in this, explain her voice, use her voice, talk about the industry and surviving it and being a woman and certain things you have to do and deal with and standing your ground. And you just realize how much she does and how she wasn't just a person that they said, stand in front of the mic, and sing this. And I, and I always appreciate seeing an artist break down their artistry. I could give a shit about who you're sleeping with and all that. Like, I don't care. But I love to hear them talk about their artistry and how they create because Mariah is a writer and she is a vocal producer and she never really lets people really see fully well, that Well, she's song. not, she, her, the genre, and I, it's funny because I was like, yeah, Mariah, whatever in the beginning. I mean, mm-hmm. I liked a lot of the stuff, but I think at that point, the Mariah-ness of her was just mm-hmm. annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing is with Mariah is that that genre is never taken as seriously as any other. It's just it's just not taken seriously. Um, You know, if it were a different genre, people go, she, you know, she writes, she produces. And it was I watched little snippets of it. And it was interesting for her to talk about the power. I mean, women, all women know that women do not get treated the same anywhere, but we certainly don't get, it's not taken seriously. It's always assumed. And obviously because she worked in a genre that is so producer driven, it was always assumed that she was not doing as much as she is or did. But I, I mean, if you take the Mariah-ness out of it and whatever that may be, she's written some amazing songs. Those are great songs and they're songs that have transcended the beat of the moment type of stuff absolutely um so and listen to them and listen to the intricacies no, of her they're background, very good. the layering of those backgrounds yeah the, the things she cho- chooses to sing in those backgrounds that that is why i believe destiny's child always worked because the harmonies and the backgrounds and the way those things really count in a song like oh always, sure and they make those moments, those little whispers and things, yeah. you know what I mean? And Mariah is really, if you go through and you listen to the ad-libs and the, the things that she chooses to do in the backgrounds and the parts of her songs, they're incredible. Yeah. So um, it's worth checking out. Absolutely. Um, all right. You want to do a quick <sighs> fucking playoffs, whatever. I'm so pissed. So the playoffs are happening. I'm watching them. None of my teens are in it. I'm, None of my I teens. guess, de facto, because I was born in Brooklyn and I'm from New York. I'm no. de facto. Yeah, me too. I'm de facto. De fa- it's de facto. Yeah, I'm de facto. Like, because yeah. of the, it's the Nets, but it's like, they're not my team. They're like, my team. I really don't have a, a fucking. I don't, I don't have, have a dog in this show at all. No, neither do I. Except, you know what? I would like to see Chris Paul finally win a fucking. Yeah, a that would be nice. Yeah, he's, he's been in the league for like 17,000 years. Yeah, and that he would does be nice. not have. And, you know, he's the president of like the Players Association. It would be oh, nice okay. if he had one. Yeah. No, but I have no dog. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, the only reason I'm even remotely caring about the Nets is they're playing the Celtics. And I would rather like uh, I would rather like do open heart surgery with a pencil than root for the Celtics. And I'm just watching to see nice legs and round asses running up and down the court. Cause I mean that's that's all I got since none of my teams are in it. Yeah, no, I, I, I just like I, I just yeah, whatever. It's gay basketball. That's what we do. We call it the gay playoffs. Oh my god, the gay offs. The gay offs. Oh, no. All right, I, pride I is going to be so good this year, Amy. Pride in New York 
I hope you're ready for I the gay for the gaytation that I'm going to force on oh, you. Oh, that you're going to force on me. Yeah. All oh, of June. We're, oh, okay. It's, it's I'm, about, good. I'm going to be gone for the first two weeks of June. So I'll, I'll escape it, that. I'll, it doesn't matter because I am going to call you overseas and wake you up every morning go, and be go. like, I'm gay. And be like, <laughs> and now I'm going to sing. All right. Let's let's just breathe. Is that right? So okay, some woman that nobody's ever heard of said something stupid about ASAP Rocky and Rihanna, and it turned out no, it wasn't even a woman. It was a man. This queen who is oh no no no, it's some messy queen who they call a fashion influencer who decides to make. But what upset me the most about this is there were legitimate outlets that picked this up. And reported it as news. It's like no one does a lick of research. They just, if you feel like you're not, people will try to be first and everybody just picks up bullshit. And it's like you spread this woman's name around um, who's who who's some designer. Rihanna is pregnant, heavily pregnant. She should be in, this should be the happiest time of her life. And ASAP Rocky, I know it caused hell over an RCA because they're about to, they're, they're getting ready for a new project and you and you're putting out some really irresponsible shit saying that he's cheating it's it's just it's it's amazing to me that that I, you know i believe in the freedom of press but i also do not believe you cannot just make up some shit and lie and put it out as fact then everybody well, picks it up well excuse me that's fox news isn't it i mean well that's a whole other Story. Yeah. So, so I mean, I story. mean, not to be disrespectful, the news story lasted 24 hours. They're happy. They're fine. She's probably going to have the baby any minute looking yeah, at her. Happy they're yeah. fine, but that woman was getting death threats. She, oh, Rihanna and ASAP Rocky are famous people. They can, yeah. some regular person whose family is being threatened is yeah. fucked up. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Well, maybe people <laughs> should stop going to the internet for their news and listening to an influencer. Oh, we're too late for that. Right. Yeah. It's like, we're, that's what we're All right. Before, um, let's just talk real. Uh, a little bit. You tip. There's this great new show on HBO, HBO Max, I guess, or HBO, HBO. called Julia. I don't know the difference. Um, <sighs> called Julia. I'm and obsessed you, with this show. No, you turn me on. So it's, it, it's about Julia Child, and it stars uh, an amazing actress. And if you've never seen her in anything, she's a British actress. Uh, Sarah Lancashire. She was in Happy Valley. She's in uh, Last Tango at Halifax. I mean, she's in a. She's a fantastic fantastic actress and she stars as Julia Child and I think she does a great job. I think it's fantastic. I think it's great because, you know, there've been 18, there's been a Julia movie. There's Julia and Julia of Meryl Streep. And I find that when people play her, they tend to caricature like and make it all crazy. But this actually seems like a portrayal of her as a woman flaws and all and not some caricature of like oh so fool so boy no it's very good it's really 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 and and uh, yeah it's a lot of fun i really uh like it a lot and you Um, know it's hard for me to get me into a lot of series i I have a list of things everyone's like are you watching this are you watching this are you watching this and i'm never watching them but i will absolutely tell you this one i look forward to very good new episodes every week no it's very good so check it um, out so speaking of very good we have well, don't introduce him because he's not here yet. So I don't want to introduce him with him not being here yet. <laughs> he's in the waiting room. Oh, is it, we have a waiting room? Well, yeah, these are, wait, these are the things that Courtney doesn't know about. He's been there, he's been there since five to four. <laughs> yes. You forget I teach on Zoom <laughs> all the 
thing. It's like, come on, man. It's like, I can tell you how to get the show to all of our networks and all of that. I don't know. How do you think you get into the show? I let you in. Well, listen, this is an attack (laughs) on me as a person, (laughs) as a human being. No, he's recovering. (laughs) Anyway. Yes. Mitchell's here. Hi, Mitchell. All right. So we have a fantastic guest. This um, show's a mess, kids. I'm glad you love us because we're a mess. Well, one of us can read. <laughs> entered the waiting room. Hi, I'm the one who teaches English. Mitchell, the waiting room. Mm. Once in a while, I know what the fuck I'm doing. Very rarely, but once in a while. Once in a And today's the day. Circle the date on the calendar. Mm-mm. All right. So Mitchell Cohen is a former A&R man and head honcho at Arista Records. And he's uh, the author of the forthcoming book, Looking for the Magic, which is the song is the title of one of my favorite Dwight Twilly songs. And so Mitchell is joining us via the interweb. Hey, Mitchell. How are you? Hey. Okay, let me just say this, Mitchell. When, when, <laughs> when, when Amy. Jump right in. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Because right right, when Amy was like, Mitchell Cohen, I was like, I know, I know that name. That I know that name. And I don't know that name from reading the name. I know, and I kept feeling like I know that name because I feel like I've heard Donnie Einer call that fucking name. I know I know oh that name. God. So yeah. then I was speaking to my friend Miguel Baguera today, who was Maxwell's publicist. He's like, oh, what are you guys doing on the show today? I was like, Mitchell Cohen's coming on. And I was like, did Mitchell Cohen work at Columbia when we were there? Because I feel like I know his name yeah. in a yeah. way I would know a name that I've heard a million times. And he's like, yes, he signed Maxwell. I'm like, boom, I have two Maxwell plaques on my wall. There oh, we they, go. They, they, I they knew I wasn't crazy. Hey, Mitchell. Hey, hi. Hey. Hi. <laughs> hi. Hi. How are you? I'm doing, I'm doing fine. How are you, you doing? guys? You know, uh, other than the fact that, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> exact that part. You don't have to wear, Mitchell. It's okay. You don't have to wear a mask on the show. Don't worry about it. Uh, who knows where I have to wear a mask? Right. I, don't. No, I mean, I'm, I'm going to wear one when I sleep. At this point, I don't care. Oh God, I'm taking no so chances. What's mm-hmm. uh, ridiculous? Um, so, yeah, um, yeah. I'm going. I'm going to. I'm going to England next week for the mm-hmm. first. Um, this is the first time I've gotten on a flight since the be- beginning of this thing, and. It's uh, yeah, I'm a little apprehensive about it. To international be honest, international may be very yeah. different, though. Oh this is, man, this is, yeah. this is a domestic rule. International may be a whole. I'm going to the um, I'm going to like a million different places in May, and part of me was like nervous about like oh I don't want to wear masks. It's going to make me claustrophobic. And now I'm like I'm wearing all the masks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like all of them at once. Yeah, I think it's going to be different. This is a domestic policy international if you're going on an international care yeah you whatever the hell you want to do yeah yeah well yeah we're flying on uh virgin atlantic oh yeah mm-hmm. richard yeah. branson will make you put on a mask yeah well <laughs> <laughs> well let's like um so for me when I was a, a cub reporter, for me, I always loved Arista. I, I Arista, I love how in this it you talk about how Arista wanted to be the sound of New York and thinking about it and reading that, I'm like, yeah, because it was so many different types of sounds and, and, you know, Patty Smith and Gil Scott Heron, like, and, yeah. and, and Barry Manilow and like, whoa. So I guess just kind of talk about like your, your 
your relationship with the label and how you got started and, and oh, all that good yeah. stuff. I was, uh, I was, yeah, I was a, a rock writer. I was writing for cream and <gasps> high fidelity and, and, yeah. and, and a whole lot of other places. And a friend of mine who had been a publicist at, at CBS records said that there was a job opening for a publicity writer at, at Arista. And I should have maybe I should apply for that. And like you, I mean, Arista, I, I had been buying Arista records since, uh, since, you know, since the label started, I mean, horses was really important to me. And, you know, they had Monty Python and Gil Scott Heron and they'd signed the Kings and they'd signed Lou Reed and, 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 and it just seemed like the place to be, you know, I, mean, I obviously was aware of Clive Davis's history. Uh, I'd read his book and um, I, I, I knew what his, what his backdrop was. Um, so I just plunged right in and, you know, and I was writing bios and press releases and photo captions and uh, all, all, all that stuff. And then I moved into advertising at Arista and then finally into A&R um, in the mid 80s. That's every writer's dream, you know, to be an a It never occurred to me that it was a dream <laughs> because I look like, and, and it's the kind of thing where, you know, when, when, I, when I approached Clive about it, it was like, everybody wants to do A&R. I can't just give out A&R jobs. It's not like candy. And I was like, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be any good at it. Um, I've been pretty good at spotting talent as a writer, but I'd never dealt with song publishers and songwriters and producers and engineers. And I hadn't been like out, like, you know, scouting, finding material. So there was like a trial period where I said, look, just send me out there, you know, have me look for songs, have me attend showcases that you don't particularly want to go to. <laughs> and if it's working out, then we'll, we'll see if it's like an actual job. If not, it's just something that took some work off your plate. Wow. And that's, what, what was and your that's first, how that happened. What was your first hit song? What was the first one? The first, the first hit song I found, uh, 1986, there was a big deal about the monkeys. Mm -hmm. the, the monkeys were back at the back on MTV. The, the monkeys were like around the clock on MTV for like a whole like marathon. And uh, there was the idea of getting at least mickey and peter in the studio to cut some new tracks to take advantage of it since arista owned the masters mm -hmm. from their hit period and so uh, the mandate was to find a song that they could cover a new song and there was a song by a local band called the mosquitoes called that was then this is now that i thought could be cut by the monkeys and I sent it to Clive and he said, yeah, and sent it to the monkeys and Mickey and Peter said, yeah, not Davey. Mm -hmm. uh, he decided to sit that one out mm -hmm. and it became a top 20 hit. And wow. that was like the first, you know, one of the first things I brought in. Oh. And did you know at that moment, did you have that confidence? Did it make you feel like, okay, I kind of know what well, I'm doing? I, I'd always had confidence in my taste as a critic but mm. as you guys know i mean you know one's critical taste and one and the 
the, the realities of the commercial world are, you know, don't always coincide. Right. Yeah. I mean, criti- so, a, crit- a critical favorite, it usually means it's not oh selling God, anything. Right. You know, <laughs> I consider myself like a minor league part of the New York City rock critic establishment, you know, and um, and a lot of the things that we had championed were, were you know, what a lot of the bands from downtown that weren't breaking through. And, um, but, Quickly enough, I think I got the hang of what Clive was looking for for each project. And I, I began to have the confidence what to play him, what not to play him, what artists to present to him, what artists not to present. Was so. there a certain kind of genre that you were? I mean, you talked about rock and roll stuff, but obviously Arista is everybody. You know, like I said, Patty Smith, you know, the monkeys, Whitney, it, it's such a far, yeah, you know, it, yeah, far it, it, reaching. I mean, my lane back when I was writing a lot was more like RB ish stuff. And I just remember always being up at Arista for that lane. You know, they were really well known for that as well. So was there kind of a, a lane that you were in in terms of acts that you were trying to find or songs you were trying to find? Um, yeah. More more in the rock and pop area, although I, I had always gravitated towards R and B. Um, you know, I mean, I, you know, and when, when I got, to, I was able to do that at Columbia. You know, with uh, you know Maxwell and Amory and a couple of other things. But I think you know the the uh, the assignment was to try and bring some rock sensibility in, 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 into Arista and R and. So I brought in the church. I brought in the Jeff Healy band, uh, you know, some, you know, things that did well for us, you know, in, in, in that area. And um, did you bring in Iggy? Was that you? No, that was Ben Edmonds, I believe. I think okay. he was running uh, A&R for us, for us in, in Those in are such, Those were sort of like his comeback records, you know, in so many they ways. Were. Those, I, like, I, like, I like those records a lot. Uh, yeah. those, those those three albums. Yeah. And um, so, look, I mean, and if, look, I mean, people always say to me, like, you know, how did you spend so much time at Aristotle? You know, didn't it drive you crazy? Whatever. I'm like, if you spend enough time in Clive Davis's office, you're going to learn how to do A&R, you know, if, right. you're paying att- if you're paying attention. You're going to learn how to, <laughs> how to talk to mastering engineers and how to talk to song publishers and how to how to negotiate between, you know, uh, artists and, 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 and executives. And yeah. So that was my learning curve. That was, um, that was my industry, you know, apprenticeship, you know, if you will. So why this book now? Because I think it's a really, it's a great subject and a great topic because when most people like me, when I think of Aristotle, I've had friends who worked there throughout the years, but I always think Aristotle, Oh, Clive Davis. And then, when Amy was telling me that this book was coming and then I started reading through what, you know, Ben sent us uh, some stuff to read. And I was like, wow, you know what? I actually don't, did not realize that it was, you know, Bell first. And then I just, I didn't know the whole story. So I really do find it interesting and amazing that, that you're telling this, this, this subject, what made you decide to tell? Yeah. um, There was a series of books coming out on BMG books, the RPM series uh, on independent record labels. And they had done sub pop and, and uh, they had assigned Chrysalis and Slash and Excello. And, and, um, and I pitched an Arista book to them. 
you know, mm-hmm. uh, just just to cover ours for the independent years mm-hmm. when it was just, you know, on, on the runway for the first 10 years. And they gave me the assignment to write that. I got the contract to write that. Um, spent a year doing the interviews. Um, interviewed 25, 30 different people. Did tons and tons of research. Handed in the book in February of 2020. And then the pandemic hit. Right. And so everything. Oh, that. Was, oh, that. Yeah. So everything was, was put on hold. And I was sure like it'll come out next year. 2021 comes. And then there's a new head of BMG book publishing. And he decides to scrap the whole series altogether. Oh, my God. Wow. wow. All, the, all, all, the, all the books that had been assigned were now in limbo. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> that sucks. So we spend a year then. I spend a year between me and the editor at BMG trying to find a home for the whole series. Couldn't find a home for the whole series. Um, Ira Robbins, I've known for years. Oh, Ira's great. Yeah. And he started putting out his own stuff through his own trouser press imprint, like book print. And I I, I was talking to Ira because he'd written an essay for another book I was involved with. And I'm saying, well, would you be interested in expanding the Trouser Press book imprint to include other writers? Because I have this book. It's it's lying around. I want to get it out. And he read it and he liked it. And he said, sure. And um, so we started working together on it. And um, so it's going to come out through the Trouser Press imprint in June. Oh, cool. I love that. I love that. And I, I, why? Yeah, because, like you said, Courtney, um, people have this perception of, 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 of Arista based solely on, I mean, you're, you're always defined by your hits. I mean, that's right. kind of, that's how it works. Right. And so it's defined by Dion Warwick and Barry Manilow and Air Supply and Kenny G and, uh, you know, Expose and a lot of, you know, just a lot of pop and, and, and no apologies for pop. You know, I'm a but Huge that's fan. not what it was built on from the beginning. You yeah, know and I, mean? I, you know, right. and I was, I was a fan of, of that kind of music. I found some songs for those particular artists, you mm-hmm. know, with no pride or prejudice. And but when you tell people, I mean, why not? When I tell people why I was drawn to work there, when I got there, like I said, it was a lot of great jazz for one thing uh, you know a great jazz department under the direction of steve backer michael cascuno was doing some great stuff that he had like the old you know the old phyllis, jazz phyllis hyman those phyllis hyman uh, phyllis great hyman, phyllis hyman, hyman records norman connors michael mm-hmm. henderson a lot of r&b that i loved eddie kendrick's martha reeves uh clive was signing a lot of interesting things in a lot of different areas and you know, say what you will about, you know, Manilow, you know, Manchester or those people. They were by no means surefire pop stars. I mean, right. there's, you know, there's a, you know, there's, there's a, there's a quirkiness, there's an outsiderness, you know, to, um, in the book, you know, I make the comparison of like Lou, Lou Reed to Barry Manilow. And I'm like, people wouldn't necessarily make that connection they're both from brooklyn and they're They're songwriters and they're songwriters they were born a year apart in brooklyn they're both jewish yeah and they both sort of sort of 
got their start in what you'd have to call the underground, you know, yeah. whether it's like the continental baths or, or, or the Dom, you know, it's like, it was sort of like a rumble from not the mainstream. I mean, it reminds what, me of different scenes in New York that were happening at the same time. There was a cabaret, a period. the cabaret scene at Reno Sweeney. There was the right. jazz scene at that seventh Avenue South. There, there, there was, there was hurrah. There was Maxwell's across the river. You know, and of course, like, CB so and and there was and Arista had his hand in all of that. Arista but it's was also a songcraft too, because all of these artists, I mean, whatever you know, Patty Smith may not be your favorite artist. I mean, she changed my life, but she may uh, not yeah, be your yeah, favorite mine. artist. But yeah. those are songs. I mean, those yeah. songs and, and Iggy, those are songs, and Barry Manilow, these are all songs, these are all songwriters, and that's really crucial. I and, mean, well, and, well and, Emerson and, had know, to play the, the same. Like, at, yeah. at the was, time that Clive yeah. signed the Kinks, mm. it was it was like a slump for them. Those those albums on RCA that mm. preceded Sleepwalker were, were not that good. They were conceptual and they weren't, you know, they didn't have breakout songs. Mm-hmm. But if you can't identify Ray Davies as a as, as a songwriter that at any moment can come up with a classic song, then you then then you're doing your job wrong. Right. So the idea of of the Kings, even the idea of the Grateful Dead. I mean, and you know that was like, I get it. I mean, it's like, and you know, I make the point that for for Clive Davis, Arista was like a redemption story. You know, he had been right. five. He had been fired from CBS in, in 73, uh, you know, for a year, he took a year off, he wrote his book and people were like wondering where he was going to turn up. And the fact that he took over the, you know, the framework of bell records and built it into what he built it by, by drawing on all those different elements of New York culture, dance music, jazz, soul, new wave, you know, whatever you want to call it from Patti Smith to, you know, Gil Scott Heron. Um, It's, you know, it's a remarkable story and it's a far more multifaceted story, I think, than people, even people who give him an enormous amount of credit, which they do and he deserves, don't really understand that he gave, he gave his people in uh, who were running the jazz division such complete free reign to sign like Anthony Braxton, like the most avant-garde. Yeah, not of, a like, commercial artist. By not, I mean, but but what, what he knew from being at Columbia was that there was an adventure side to the market. Like, he, you know, mm-hmm. he, he worked with Herbie Hancock in Weather Report and the Mahavishnu Orchestra. And so there was no reason for him not to carry that philosophy into, into Arista signed the headhunters and Anthony Braxton and the Brecker brothers and Angela Bofill. I love the people that he those early. Oh yeah. Yeah. When, when he, when he picked up a GRP. Yeah. I just listened to some of those records and, and the fact that you know that a lot of them did not sell a lot, but the people got a chance to make album after album after album and some, they're really great albums, you know, and that yeah. takes a music man, a visionary who knows that some of these people could be one song away from, an explosion because the talent was there, you know. Look, I wouldn't have signed Kenny G. I mean, let's right. be let's be honest, but uh, but it it definitely took some insight to realize that you could pluck you know a saxophone player out of a jazz fusion group 
you know, and make him the biggest pop instrumentalist of his era. I mean, it, it, it's not with, for me, yeah, but yeah. Same but, thing with like an expose, right? Expose, what people don't realize is the first two singles that they released were studio singers. It wasn't the three ladies who ended right. up as, as the group, but he signed a freestyle group that sold millions of records and they had album. They had several albums on Arisa. That's There was that moment where freestyle groups and dance acts were getting signed by major labels in that yeah. late 80s, early 90s period. And very few of them really sold a bunch of records and got several albums. But he was able to take that, even that genre of music, which most people would think of as almost throwaway, and have real pop hits album after album after album. That's the thing. Anyone can have like one hit with a disco record. Yeah. I mean, you know, they came and went. I mean, and and you don't you didn't always sell albums off of them. But we sold Expose and Taylor Dane albums. I mean, you know, there was there was just some, I mean this is the period after the period that's covered in the book, but it's revealing of the whole of the the whole AR philosophy which was very different from the A&R philosophy that he inherited from Bell, Amy, and Mala. Um, Larry Utah, uh, who was, who was <clears throat> running that organization, outsourced everything. He, did, he didn't really have an in-house A&R team. Mm-hmm. He would find talented producers, or product, make production deals, and just, you know, he was like a clearinghouse. And, you know, it was more like, I'm going to fly to England, and make a deal with Mickey Most and, you know, and get Susie Quattro. Um, but, but he didn't, it wasn't like he was his own A&R person, really. He, he trusted A&R to the people that actually made the records. Clive just flipped that on his head, obviously, and became very hands-on with his own A&R department, Bob Fyden, Rick Chertoff. Do you have and, a moment uh, in an album that you're the most proud of that you A&R during that period? Is there the one that you uh, look back and uh, say, this was well, a difference maker for me? I have A&R during the period covered by the book, but... Um, but so the, your whole Arista time, your whole Arista time... But the was, whole Arista time, there, there, there were two. There, there was like, when I heard a demo, the, you know, the church were a band that had been on Capitol and Warner Brothers in America without breaking through... And I heard a demo that had under the Milky Way on it. And it just sounded like a smash hit to me, like a crossover, I guess, college radio to pop hit. And the fact that Arista believed in it, let me do that record was, you know, I was very proud of it. And when I, when I saw, went up to Toronto to sign, to sign the Jeff Healy band, and we knew that they needed songs. And I went on a trip to Nashville and found two songs by John Hyatt, Confidence Man and Angel Eyes. And they broke him and the album went platinum. I dug my first platinum album as an A&R guy. So. Is there anybody that you really wanted that you couldn't? Oh, I just wanted to ask real fast. Uh, Jeff the- Buckley. Oh, you wanted to uh, go. Oh, okay. Uh, but, um, I met Jeff Buckley, who's really amazing. He was amazing, yeah, yeah. amazing, I, amazing, I, amazing guy. Amazing I brought Clive to see him at Cheney. Oh, yeah. And that I, when I didn't sign Jeff, mm-hmm. when he went to Columbia, there was a job offer on the table for me from Columbia. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, 
you know what? If I had gotten Jeff, I could have stayed. I would have stayed at Arista and made his record. Right. But the fact that that job was on the table, and I'm like, yeah, you know what? I didn't get the artist that I really wanted, mm-hmm. so I can take this leap without leaving him in the lurch. Right. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Wait a minute. Are you saying did you A&R the Grace album? No, no, no. Steve Berkowitz did. Oh, okay. Uh, no, 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 no. I did not. That was a no. I when I when I got to Columbia, he, Jeff was already a Columbia artist. Steve was making that record. I was just a friend to Jeff. He could come into my office and crash to get away from people who were like, you know, on this case. Well, when's the record? When's the record? <laughs> did you know his dad? Did you know his dad at all? I did. I'd seen his dad, his dad play, uh, like at the at the Fillmore East, like right. I, I, but you know when I was a teenager. Right. Um, but no, but you know, but you know, being in the presence of Jeff live was just one of those things where you you, you never forget it. And he had like a regular gig at Shanae, right? And every week, if a friend of mine was in town, I'd be like, "You got to come down with me to Shanae." And um, and so many people to this day, so I'll never forget when you brought me downtown to see Jeff Buckley. I mean, uh, he you know he had he had you know the book is called like Looking for the Magic. That's what we do. It's he had that thing. He really did have that magic. He yeah. there was something super 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 special about him. And I remember everyone in the building being really excited about Grace and then really devastated when he had just gotten down to Louisiana to start I always think Memphis. it was New Orleans. He yeah, jumped in the Mississippi, no, right? Yeah. He jumped in the Mississippi. I remember the the building, people were crying. It was just yeah, I was, it was a yeah. bad day. Someone came into then. my office and says they you know they can't find Jeff. And I'm like well, what what does that mean? You know, well, he wandered off and no one knows where he is. Mm. And I'm like, well, it's Jeff Buckley. Even though right. he's at some girl's house or, mm-hmm. you know, he had an all-nighter somewhere or thing, you know, he'll he'll turn up. He'll show up at the studio like five hours late. And before too long, it was clear that that was not how the story was going to end. And um, it was a terrible, terrible day at the office. It was. It was just, a really was, bad day. It was. At the it, it was. It was hard. It was heartbreaking. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask just real. You meant. I'm just curious. With Pete Shelley, was that when he the Homo Sapien era, yeah. or was it okay? Yeah, Homo Sapien. Yeah, that's when Arista was picking up a lot of things from. I mean, the that UK. was a risky move in a lot of ways. I mean, when you think about it for, I mean, the Buzzcocks were great, obviously an amazing, and he's an amazing songwriter, but for, to pick up him at that point and have him do that song at that time. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, there were a lot of people that really believed in that record. And, 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 and you know, we had a lot of success in, in that genre. We you know, having 17 and, Thompson Twins and Icicle Works and Haircut 100. It was like Flock of Seagulls, for God's sake. Um, <laughs> it was no. definitely, it was definitely, a, you know, that, I mean, that was a whole different era. You know, that was like the end of the Arista Indie era. Right. So and, a- right and, and right, right before Whitney. So my, my question to you is, as somebody who was really in a publicity realm, how were you finding records, you know, at, at that that juncture in that time, like people would just say, we, was it relationships that you had? So people would play it, you, be, records? Well, you, you know, 
you made the relationships. And obviously I had relationships in the rock writer community and my rock writer friends would turn me on to things be like, Oh, I saw the, you know, this, I saw, saw this band at the bitter end last night, you should drop by. So there was that. And then the more you're out scouting, the more you meet other people who are on that circuit, you start to meet, you know, the music business attorneys, you know, you meet the managers and you know, the song publishers who are looking to sign writers. And then that becomes a community and becomes, you know, a network of like that, you know, so yeah, yeah it, it, be, it was a very fun time to be running around New York in the late seventies. I mean, it was just, it just was, I mean, it's like, like we were saying earlier, you could go, uh, you know, to, you know, Seventh Avenue South to the bottom line. Now, we spent half our lives at the bottom line. Um, that was such a great venue. I've seen yeah, so it was the many best, people at the bottom. Columbia the loved doing thing. the showcase at the bottom line. I've seen everybody at the in bottom the, I, I was like, in the first, like, two, three years of Arista's existence, I think they had, like, something like 25 acts headline at the bottom line. I mean, that was like, that, that was like home base. I mean, everybody from, you know, the Alpha Band and Baby Grand and Rick Danko and and then later on, uh, Graham Parker and Dwight Twilley. And, you know, yeah. For some reason in my head, I feel like I saw Bruce Springsteen at the bottom line when I was at Columbia. I can't, there was like some showcase of something there, there that was. happened that there I was, was there for. I, in my head, I feel like I remember that. But he that. did those, those really yeah. famous shows were like in 75, yeah, right? Yeah, the famous yeah. shows in yeah. 75. But right before I got there in the early 90s, when he was going to put out those two solo, those two right. albums at the same time, mm-hmm. I was still, I was not there yet. But there was a special show just for Columbia people. At yeah, the I feel line. like it was at the bottom line. Yeah, because mm-hmm. no, I, everyone was telling me about it when I got to Columbia. Oh, you missed Bruce at the bottom line. I'm like, yeah, I've seen him at the bottom line. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I, I, know, I know what that's all about. Um, I miss that venue. I'm, that's old school New York. That was no, a, that was a great venue. It was I, a great venue, great sound, great yeah. everything. It was not too I've big, seen not so too small. so many memorable shows there. I mean, yeah. Elvis, Elvis Costello and the attractions, um, you know, wow. uh, just, it's incredible. I saw Willie DeVille there, I think. I think yeah, he played the Willie or Mink DeVille and then David Johan. Oh, so I have my knee. I asked, so I, you saw the dolls in their heyday? I did. I did and see it, that. It, I, was I did. it like the greatest thing ever? It was it, it was the most fun you could have because okay. it was the only it was first of all, it was the only thing really going on in the early 70s. I mean, right. there really was it was it was like a lull, and I was just starting out as a rock writer and I was looking for stuff to get excited about. And and that was the thing. It was just like it was like ramshackle and and and, and sloppy and fun and like a, a celebratory thing it was just, yeah it couldn't it, it was like a band made for rock critics i guess but yeah um yeah. which is why they can't get into yeah, the, the right. hall of fame yeah. every year <laughs> I, was, i've seen the them same. but once after after johnny died i saw them when they kind of got back together but they seem to be such a noise that only new yorkers can hear no, sometimes no, yeah. it, it didn't, no one else really i guess in england they they kind of got it right um, but not, you know, it didn't really travel well. Um, and then uh, I did an interview with uh, David for his first solo album. When oh, he, such when a I great was album. In, when I was in, when I was at Cream, I, I, I interviewed David, uh, who I love. love. Yeah. It's just yeah. When were you yeah. at Cream? Like during like the 
capital C cream era or the next phase of the cream next uh, phase two. Okay. I would say, um, uh, yeah, I was, God, what year? Like, I started writing for them when it was still phase one with okay. Lester and them, but, uh, and I knew, I knew, I knew them pretty well, but I really started writing more for them, like in the early 80s, I want to okay. say. You know, I did like, you know, the B-52s and the Ramones. You know, I, I, yeah, I interviewed them and Mary and Faithful, like after Broken English and things like that. So that was like my that was like my home base for a while. When I was a kid, I, I've told Courtney, like, so I would I would go to the library and instead of reading like 17 magazines so I could know how to put on makeup and find boys, <laughs> I would read like Crawdaddy and Cream and Rock Scene. I, like I was like I knew all these bylines. It was yeah. just like so exciting for me, you know. Yeah, I was I was just like the next generation after okay. Griel and Lester. And I mean, I got uh, so I started writing in like, I don't know, 73, 70, around 73, 74, maybe, um, writing, writing professionally. Um, um, I was going to, who are you listening to the, I mean, what gets you, does, it, does something keep you excited about music? I mean, are you, have you, are you still I listening to stuff or? Uh, well, um, yeah, I mean, you know, look, I listen to a lot of older music. Of course, but I try and listen to, I try and listen more to like current pop. Okay. You know, like Billie Eilish and Taylor Swift and, you know, and. Phoebe who are those? Virginia. Who are, Courtney, have you ever heard of either one of those women? I've never heard I've of them. I've never, I think no. they have, I think that they're underground. Some new, they're very, yeah, I know. I think yeah, there's some new artists on TikTok. I, I, yeah, I need to look yeah. there. Yeah, I've <laughs> never heard of them. No, they're very obscure, but. Yeah. But. Uh, you know, I mean, I have to admit, like the last shows I've seen were like Bob Dylan and Mavis Staples. And so I'm like, you know, if you're over 80, I'll probably go to your show. And, <laughs> Just so you can feel young. Right. <laughs> yeah, so I got, in that in that context, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm youthful. Um, yeah. But uh, I, I don't get excited by any of the new rock bands that my rock friends tell me about well like who are the new rock bands that rock friends are telling you about i'm being serious i can't there's think of like that, a new rock band there's something called royal blood i think you know i don't oh. know matt mm. matt pinfield told me about it. and oh. uh, but i and i do listen to some contemporary country uh Mar Marin Morris and Miranda Lambert. And, oh, they're really good. Yeah. And, and uh, Eric Church, I've seen a couple of mm. times live. And I, I always, yeah, yeah, I, I, he's, he's great live. Um, so between, yeah, but mainly I'm playing older stuff, to be honest, um, which is why it was so much fun to dig into history for this book and find records that I didn't know. Right. When does Looking for Magic actually hit? The first, everybody, you can pre-order the book now, right? Looking for the Magic comes out June 10th. Looking for the Magic. Here's the thing. This is a great... Trouserpressbooks.com. Absolutely. And everybody, pre-order now. Because <laughs> especially all of you industry kids, here's the thing. Know the history of all of these places. It's really important. And actually, when people who are masters write something... You should read it. You'll actually learn some things and it will help you in today's world of A&R. And reading kids. is fundamental. Now here's the thing, Mitchell. Now you know 
you're going to have to write another book and do about the Columbia Rears because I was there. There's a lot oh of fuckery God. and a lot of that, those years. <laughs> those uh, yeah, you know, the, 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 the the 1990 uh, the, the mid 90s through the early 2000s at uh-huh. Columbia. <laughs> with um, I mean, look, just I mean, I, I remember. <laughs> seeing, seeing Alicia Keys, uh-huh. 16 years old, in the Sony Club, yep. play for us. And I said to Donnie, I'm like, this girl is like L- Laura Nero, crossed with Roberta Flack. This girl is amazing. She was like a high school kid. Mm-hmm. We signed her. And, and had her for a year. And then we dropped her. And it broke my heart. Remember? It, I just, I was like, and I, and they couldn't I, figure I, out what to do with her. They no, had I her know. For so we, long. Because they didn't just let Alicia be Alicia. Right. And they weren't trying to make they couldn't the image, they did didn't know. And what then to do. and then what and then when Clive Davis was was writing his book, mm-hmm. he called me up and he said, Can you explain to me what happened? Why I was able to sign Alicia Keys? <laughs> he said, I didn't think there was a chance in hell. My AR guy was bringing her to me and said, I think we could get her off Columbia. <laughs> and I kept telling him he was crazy that they're never going to let her go and you're wasting my time. And I'm like, it's one of the saddest stories because I have an, a, a CD of an, al- an Alicia Keys album in progress. For, for Columbia. I, have, I used I to said, have, I have that on tape. I said, somewhere. I'll bring it over to your office. Yeah. I'll play it for you. Right. I'm like, Alicia Keys. And he, I said, like, believe me, uh, if anyone had asked me uh, if if I wanted to A&R her, you know, which you thought they might have because I worked with Maxwell, mm-hmm. I, w- I would have jumped at it. But that just shows, like, nobody's right all the time. But no. We we had we Neo, remember, we had Neo either when he was going under his we, name Schaefer. She was a Schaefer Smith, and he was signed. He had, and he had Katie a full Perry. album. And we, and we dropped Katy Perry. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's like, you know, there was like a lot of strange shit going on. But at the same time. But that's where Clive was good with women, because Clive could hear especially with certain women, he could, he heard something that other music people didn't with certain people. And he was able to make that magic. with. Look, yeah. I I talk a little bit about, you know, the beginning days of Whitney and just, this is a whole other conversation, but there were so many misconceptions about Whitney and about what Arista was trying to do with Whitney. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think if anything, you know, aside from like the big ballady Michael Masser things, we were trying to make her seem more youthful and sexier right. than she was presenting when she was like a breakout in her mom's set, like singing like show songs and stuff. Right. I th- you know, she she came with that. She came with the greatest love of all. I mean, that right. that was already like in her in her zone. That wasn't something that anyone imposed on her. Mm-hmm. That was her natural thing, and I think. If anything, that first album, you know, working with Kashif and, and and Narda, maybe like must her up a little bit, but 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 people only point to like the big ballady things. Well, the second album is where black people got mad. Because remember, yeah. black people fell in love with her on the first album. That, that, first, so well, and then the second album to them seemed, especially when I Wanna Dance was the first single, it seemed yeah. so pop and in certain ways it was actually very 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 smart because 
if you if he had just pegged her as a black artist, I don't know if she would have gotten the worldwide success that she had. And I did that when I was working with Matthew Knowles. Pop was mm. very important to him. He's yeah, like, if, oh, yeah. if you want to be able to make the right, if you want to be able to make your R&B records and make whatever records you want going forward, you need to solidify yeah. this pop base and then you can Matthew, do what Matthew, you want. Matthew did everything right with Beyonce. That's yeah. Sure. He, I mean, he made Columbia go pop, and he started with Destiny's around, Child. During the whole controversy about the first single for the, from the first Beyonce album. I was there for everything. Oh, my God. And then I went to work for Matthew at Music I World. Swear, so, yeah. I, I sat in that A&R meeting mm-hmm. when they played Crazy in Love, mm-hmm. and I said to my co-A&R people, I've never heard a more natural number one hit in my life. Mm-hmm. And then I had to hear everyone around me say, it's not going to be top 10 of black radio. I don't really see this mm-hmm. first single. Everything. And we're the, you know, the pop A&R people who are not even supposed to weigh in on this are like, no, no, no. There's only one song to launch Beyonce and it's crazy in love. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was, a, you remember, there was so much resistance to it. Well, especially after the first thing they put out from her solo wise was work it out. And they thought that, you know, that was from uh, the, the, uh, the Austin Powers movie. And they thought that mm. it would be a hit and it was more funk and it was kind of black, but it was not a hit. And it wasn't, funny, it just, it wasn't crazy in love. No, it definitely <laughs> crazy in love was nothing else sounded like that at the moment. And it no. was like an explosion to me hearing it. It was like, this is, yeah, it. me too. Yeah. Same it's still the that. best song she's ever done. It's, as far oh, as no, I'm no, absolutely, it's, it's like, I really well, think, I, and I also think it's one of Jay's best verses. Yeah, listen, it's, a, a, yeah. it's a declarative statement. It, no, it's, it's, a, it's I yeah. am when you're, here. When, when you're when you're when you're in a meeting in a room and you hear a song like that for the first time, it's just like you know, a, like like a light goes off. No, it's, right. just, it, it, it's yeah. I would and, write, and, yeah, I love and that. To then, and to then hear people think that it wasn't the right record, I'm like, I don't know. Right, but then the record comes out and everybody wants to take claim, right? And then everybody everybody, like, oh, I, I knew it, it, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. I knew it. Yeah. Well, Mitchell Cohen, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, on Mitchell. Today. Oh my God, this was was such a pleasure. (laughs) No, and you know, we know anything Ben Merlis asks (laughs) us to do, we do. Well, but it's so funny. But as soon as she said the name, I was like, I know that name. And I kept feeling like I've heard Donnie say that name. Uh, 500 yeah. times. I know I'm or not scream, crazy. Or scream so, that name. So I kept like looking online like, yeah, everywhere and I'm like, like scream that name. <laughs> right. so I could hear, I could hear right. him on the sixth floor or the ninth floor. So then finally I go to Miguel when I'm fine. I'm like, Miguel. I, yeah. I'm like, and he's like, yes. I'm like, thank you. I knew it wasn't crazy. I know I'm not crazy. Yeah. So guys, looking for the magic. June 10th. You can thank pre-order you, it to oh, thank you. day. Uh, uh, and yeah. you guys know what it is. Thank you guys for listening to us on the Pantheon Podcast Network, where we're here every Thursday. There are over 70 music shows. You know what to do. Love them all. You know what to do for us. Star. Leave a star. Leave a rating. Tell a friend. Post it to your social media. Follow us on all of our social media. You guys are there. You know the gab. And we love you. And we'll see you next week. Thank you, Mitchell. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, Mitchell. Take care. (laughs) 
This is Mike Francesa. Join me each week on the Mike Francesa podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. This is real sports talk for the podcast generation. Subscribe to the free Mike Francesa podcast today from wherever you get your podcasts. Don't even think about betting this football season until you check out the Sports Betters Paradise podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. The top college and pro football handicappers help you along all season long. Subscribe to Sports Betters Paradise wherever you get your podcasts. It's not easy being the one everyone counts on to keep your operation running, no matter the weather or supply chain hiccup. But we get you, Raymond in Buffalo, Maria in Miami, and Jules and Troy, taking control of everything that's under your control. At Granger, we're here for you with high quality supplies for every industry, plus real time product availability and access to experts ready to help. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.